Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I pick an individual bird species and tell you everything you need to know about them. I read all the scientific articles so you don't have to, bringing you the best and coolest facts. Um, and I usually try to record outside when I can. Today I'm in First Landing State Park in Virginia Beach, recording in the woods. Um, hopefully we get to hear some birds while I'm out here too. Today's bird is the Magnificent Frigate Bird. This is a really cool bird species that was suggested by BirdNerd510. Um, along with BirdNerd suggestions, I got a ton of other great episode suggestions. I'm going to try to cover all those birds, people. There's a, a lot of them, so give me some time. Thanks for writing in your suggestions for episodes. Um, while I'm talking about um, suggestions, uh, you may notice tagged along with this episode is a very short episode. Um, I'm trying out something a little different, um, trying some more short form episodes too to go along with my longer episodes. Um, and let me know what you guys think. I'm, I'm really, you know, looking for y'all suggestions on how to improve the show, what y'all like, what you don't like. Um, I'm so grateful for all my listeners, um, but I would love to grow my audience, get more people, you know, involved in Dirty Bird and just involved in birding in general. Um, so let me know what you think. And as always, if you want some free Dirty Bird stickers, write in and just let me know. I'll send some your way. Anyway, here we go, launching into talking about magnificent frigate birds. In this episode, I've titled Frig Off, a uh, tribute to the show Trailer Park Boys. Frigate bird off, Mr. Leahy. It's a uh, very breezy day out here in the woods. Um, the remnants of Tropical Storm Ophelia. There's like tree branches down everywhere, very wet and soggy. Uh, kind of a cool atmosphere to record in, though. Hopefully the birds aren't still scared by the storm. The Magnificent Frigate Bird is a large seabird uh, about the size of a pelican and can have up to a 7-foot wingspan. Those wings are very distinct. They're angular and crooked. Um, they kind of remind me of the shepherd's crook um, that you see in osprey wings, uh, just a, a lot bigger. They have a deeply forked tail too, kind of like a swallow's tail. Um, so, you know, their tail has like two little spindly threads uh, that, that come off the end. Um, but you don't always see that fork. Um, they'll often hold it together um, to just form a singular, very pointy looking tail. There's some very pissed off Carolina wrens somewhere. I wonder what's pissing them off, like a hawk or something, maybe a snake. Their beak is also uh, very long and very pointed. Um, they have like a, a very um, sharp end to their beak. It, it ends in a hooked tip, um, kind of similar to like a, a seagull's bill, you know, um, except bigger. <laughs> They're usually entirely black, um, but there's a few exceptions to that. Um, and actually this coloration helps tell males from females and juveniles. Oh, we got some birds moving through black-capped chickadee. Um, females have white on their neck and chest, um, but they'll still have black heads. <laughs> I think the birds discovered that I'm sitting here and they're talking about me. <laughs> A whole little family group of uh, chickadees. 
So you can tell females from males because males are usually entirely black. Um, but uh, the females will have white on their neck and chest. Um, juveniles, you can tell because they will usually have an entirely white head. And um, adults, especially the males, will have a bit of lighter color black on the undersides of their wings. Um, it actually resembles a lot um, turkey vultures, um, how they have like an entire kind of strip of lighter color um, along the bottom of their wings. In fact, when I first saw a magnificent frigate bird, I was in Key West. Um, I was like, you know, just bird watching with binoculars um, over the water. And um, I saw what I thought was a turkey vulture, you know, circling. And I saw, you know, the lighter color on the underside of the wings, which is, is usually like my, my go-to that I know it's a turkey vulture. Um, but then I was like, oh man, those wings look kind of different. That body looks different. And, and hell, that, uh, that beak is really long. Um, but what really gave it away is I saw a red patch on the throat. So that's a red guller patch. Um, and um, at first, you know, I saw it and thought it was the red head of the turkey vulture. And then I was like, hey, that's only on the neck, though. Um, this is probably one of the most remarkable um, things, you know, when you're when you're looking at magnificent frigate birds. This is like the the really cool thing to see is the red gular patch um, on the males. Um, it's there during the breeding season. If you're really fortunate, um, you might see them inflate it. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. Um, but that is a, a big field marker for these birds. Um, in fact, where I saw this magnificent frigate bird in, in Key West, um, that does actually represent the northernmost um, breeding range um, of, these, of these birds. The only U.S. breeding population of magnificent frigate birds occurs on the island of Dry Tortugas. Um, as we'll talk about, they used to breed, um, you know, uh, along uh, a much wider range. They used to breed along the Gulf Coast of Texas, um, but those breeding populations were extirpated. Outside of the breeding season, that red gular patch on the male is going to be kind of more a dull orange. So you may see that um, outside of the breeding season. If uh, you're fortunate enough to see them up close, uh, you'll notice that there's some iridescence to the black feathers uh, with males reflecting a green iridescence while females have a purple iridescence. Um, you know, similar to like if the sun hits a raven, right? Uh, you know, you'll kind of see the black reflect some, uh, some iridescent colors um, and, and, and this will happen in the frigate birds too. If you're really close, you may even spot the female's blue eye ring, which is another distinct field marker to tell the females from the males. Usually you're never seeing these birds up close though. They're flying high in the air, gliding or rising along the thermal column. Um, they flap only rarely and when they do, it's slow, deep beats. And they have sexual dimorphism. Uh, the females are about 15% larger than the males. As far as the range of these birds, um, they are a bird of warm weather and warm water. Uh, they're usually found along the coast and out over open water from Baja California down to Peru on the Pacific side. And over the Atlantic, you know, they're, they're a bird of the Caribbean. They're um, uh, seen around Florida, along the Gulf Coast, and then all the way down to Brazil. Their breeding range is much more restricted. Um, on the Pacific side, they breed along Baja California, the coast of Mexico. On the Atlantic side, you know, the dry Tortugas, into the Caribbean, Mesoamerica, and then along the northern coast of Colombia and Venezuela. There's also a breeding population on the Galapagos Islands that I'll talk about later on in the evolution section. In the non-breeding season, there's a much wider range um, for these birds. Um, you can see them all the way up to North Carolina. Um, and anecdotally, um, they are said to ride storms, um, which sometimes results in them ending up far outside their usual range. On the Atlantic side, they can sometimes be spotted as far north as Newfoundland. Um, in the Pacific, they'll sometimes pop up in Alaska. Um, they'll also pop up inland, too, um, in New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas, where presumably they followed rivers up from the ocean. This, uh, them being seen outside of the range is, you know, this is particularly during bad weather. Um, possibly they're going inland to avoid storms, um, or like I said, riding the storm um, and um, they've even popped up super inland in the very heart of America in Colorado. 
Sometimes they'll even cross the Atlantic Ocean and end up on the coast of West Africa or Europe. Uh, I'll talk about their common name, frigate bird, in a moment, um, but their scientific name, you know, there's not much to it. Frigata magnificens, you know, literally just Latin translation for magnificent frigate bird. So let's talk about the feeding of these birds. Um, and to talk about their feeding, I have to bring up another surprising fact. So these are seabirds, you know, they're out over the ocean, but their feathers are not waterproof, which is really weird for, you know, a seabird. Um, they can't plunge into the water to capture fish the way pelicans do. Uh, they can't float on the surface the way that gulls do. Instead, they rely solely on like skimming the surface or catching um, food. 80% of their diet comes from offal. Um, offal basically refers to parts of an animal that are usually not eaten and discarded. When fisheries process fish, they'll toss the parts they don't want back into the sea and they float on the surface, which is perfect for frigate birds to scoop up. Um, often, frigate birds will be seen following, you know, fishing boats or fishing trawlers, um, uh, particularly shrimping boats from what I saw. And this makes up a big part of their diet um, in areas where there's fisheries. Pre-humans, um, they probably, you know, relied on some scraps left over from predatory fish like sharks and tuna. And they also rely on, like, dolphins, sharks, tunas, predatory uh, marine animals to stir up um, prey. Um, prey like flying fish and flying squid that will pop up out of the water and the frigate birds will, will grab right out of the air. I'll be honest, I didn't even know flying squid were a thing. You know, I knew flying fish, but flying squid, that's, that's so cool. Um, they've also been known to eat young turtles, crabs, plankton, which <laughs> are, are really small, but I guess they can eat them, um, jellyfish, and even the young of other seabirds. Uh, sometimes they delve into some grosser habits in their scavenging. <laughs> they've been observed picking up questionably edible items uh, that have come out of sewage outlets. They are pretty ready to exploit any new food source um, that they can find and, uh, and can be pretty bold. Um, they've been observed uh, plucking freshwater fish from man-made ponds, um, fish out of fishermen's nets. Uh, they've even been observed eating fish that were stunned and floating on the surface from dynamite used during the construction of the Panama Canal. Their uh, osteology and muscle structure um, gives uh, a little bit of highlight to their, their feeding habits and how they evolved to feed this way. They have long bills with posteriorly attached muscles, meaning the muscles attach like at the back of their bills. Um, the, the physics of this mean that frigate bird bite is relatively weak because, you know, the muscle is pulling from way back on the beak. Um, so it, it's not like a very advantageous, um, you know, attachment point for, uh, for pull, closing really strong. Um, it's a mechanical disadvantage. Uh, however, this means that that muscle is really short, um, and so it can contract really fast. So this means that frigate birds can really quickly close their beak, but it's not a very strong bite. Um, but this is perfect because they can snatch up fast-moving flying prey, and then they just rely on that hooked bill to secure the food item rather than having an iron-strength grip. The really interesting feeding strategy of these birds, though, is their kleptoparasitism. So they steal food from other birds to help supplement their diet. Um, in fact, this is what gives frigate birds their common name. Um, a frigate, classically in the 17th and 18th centuries, was a highly maneuverable, fully rigged warship which frigate birds were compared to by sailors. Sailors would see them, you know, very gracefully, you know, maneuvering through the air, chasing other birds and stealing food from them. And, you know, so they compared them to small, fast warships. Um, English sailors would also call them man-of-war birds. Um, sometimes they're colloquially called pirate birds. And it's really cool to see um, them do these aerial chases, chasing other bird species, forcing them to either drop food or regurgitate food. Um, other frigate birds are potential targets too. Um, and uh, the chases are not just like intimidation. It's not like they just, you know, chase them and scare them. They will, you know, physically attack other birds. They will bite wings, feet, and tails. Sometimes they'll even flip over their victims um, in mid-flight, which, you know, is probably pretty scary. And, and, you know, they're like, get away from me. All right, fine, have my food. Um, when the other bird drops the food, um, they will swoop down and often catch it before it even hits the water. 
and it's not just birds that they'll steal from. They are bold. They've been observed stealing food from sea lions, and they'll even snatch bait away from fishermen's hands. Yeah, these birds got some balls. <laughs> um, in a study I found from the Galapagos Islands, juvenile magnificent frigate birds engaged in kleptoparasitism more than adults. Um, this might be because they're not as adept at, you know, catching their own food. Um, they're still learning, and so then they have to rely on stealing a bit more. I, I think um, we found a similar pattern with uh, bald eagles, from what I remember in our bald eagle episode, that juveniles had to steal more. They weren't as good at catching their own food. Another really cool thing is that uh, they train for this, you know, thieving lifestyle from a young age. Uh, young frigate birds will practice their food stealing skills by playing games. Uh, they'll chase each other with sticks in their mouths, trying to steal their other friend's stick. When a stick is dropped, the chasing bird must dive down and catch it before it hits the water. Sometimes they'll team up in groups to chase down birds and shake them down for their food. Um, when they do this, they have a higher success rate. On a study done in Little Cayman, groups were 83% successful compared to 27% successful uh, for stealing food. So, you know, that, that's a pretty big, uh, big difference. A, a gang of frigate birds is going to be more successful at getting food than just one little individual. Sometimes the robbers get robbed, though. Herman's gulls and laughing gulls are known to steal food from frigate birds. So, um, since frigate birds aren't waterproof, they can't take a break and float on the surface like a lot of other birds can. Instead, they are masters at staying airborne. They can actually spend whole days and nights on end on wing, um, a feat only seen in the frigate bird family and one other bird, the common swift. I won't go into a discussion on wing aspect ratio again. Um, I've done this in a, a lot of episodes where I talk about the aerodynamics and, and physics about uh, bird wings. Check out my Swift episode, Godwit episode, Vulture episode. I, I talk about, uh, you know, that at length. But, um, you know, in brief, um, for frigate birds, they have these long pointed wings. Um, and this results in a high wing aspect ratio. Uh, high wing aspect ratios allow for more lift and less drag. This does sacrifice maneuverability. Um, you know, think about hawks, they kind of have short blunt wings so that they can turn really quick and, and grab prey. Um, but the long pointed wings, this allows frigate birds to stay airborne for long periods of time with minimal effort. Um, their long forked tail actually helps add to their maneuverability. Um, it sort of acts like dual rudders. Uh, their maneuverability is also increased by their low wing loading. Uh, wing loading refers to mass of an airborne object divided by the area of its wings. Lower wing loading means a bird can turn in tighter circles. Uh, this is important for frigate birds because they'll follow those thermal air currents. They need to kind of turn in tight circles to rise with the air current. Um, I talk about wing loading a lot on my vulture episode, by the way, because uh, vultures, you know, also do this. Um, magnificent frigate birds have really low wing loading. In fact, they have the lowest body mass to wing area ratio of any bird species. They also have a fused pectoral girdle, uh, meaning that they can basically lock their wings in place and don't need to spend any energy to keep them open. They can even sleep on the wing, um, although it's not great sleep. They only sleep in like 10 second bursts while flying that adds up to like 45 minutes a day. Um, in a future episode, I'll definitely talk about bird sleep in more detail, but basically they are able to fly and sleep at the same time by resting one side of their brain at a time. Uh, many other bird species do this, even while on land. Um, it's why you'll often see birds with their head tucked, but still one eye open, um, watching out for predators or like resting one side of their brain while keeping the other one awake, looking out that eye, uh, you know, making sure nothing's sneaking up on them. Um, although they never land in water, frigate birds still have webbed feet. These webbed feet um, actually attracted the attention of Charles Darwin um, when he formed his theory of evolution, uh, as he recognized them as a vestigial organ or remnant of their ancestral species that no longer served any function. In fact, their legs are so short that frigate birds can't even walk. That um, never, you know, getting wet thing isn't entirely true, though, because they have been observed dunking in freshwater uh, ponds um, or, or lakes um, to bathe. But, you know, they're never, like, diving into the seawater or, or floating. They would just become waterlogged and drown. 
Let's talk about the breeding of these birds. Uh, the breeding of these birds is pretty surprising and doesn't follow the typical narrative for birds raising young. Um, they also have a very elaborate courtship ritual. They are a socially monogamous species, um, but with an asterisk there, as I'll talk about. The breeding season begins between August and October. Males will attract mates using that bright red gular patch on their throat. Like I said, that pouch is inflatable and blows up like a balloon. Let's pause for a second and dive into that gular pouch. Um, so, you know, it's a red gular pouch. They inflate it like a balloon. So presumably a bigger and redder pouch indicates, you know, increased fitness, is sexier to the females, um, will attract more mates. Uh, I found one study that tested this hypothesis. Uh, it did find that older, heavier males had brighter gular sacs. I also read another paper that found increased levels of testosterone in courting males with very red gular patches compared to courting males with paler patches. So this makes sense because individuals that have more energy to invest into their, you know, <laughs> throat sac, um, they uh, have more energy to invest in those car carotenoid pigments, um, which, which turn the sac red, and then they have more energy to invest in producing testosterone hormones. Um, and so that's a sign of their increased fitness level and uh, a better attractant to the ladies. In their courtship display, males will stand around in a group on the ground displaying that inflated red neck sack. Uh, they'll clatter their bills, they'll wave their heads, they'll quiver their wings. Um, that seems to be a common thing along uh, birds when they're, you know, displaying or mating. They'll quiver their wings. Um, and then they'll call out, too. The females will fly overhead, appraising the males, um, circling, hmm, he sure does have a nice sack. Look how red that sack is. <laughs> Um, if the female likes what she sees, she will fly down and perch next to the male. They will then shake their heads at each other, clatter their bills, and even rub necks. The female may also nibble at the male and uh, touch that sexy sack with her bill. Mmm, Randy. <laughs> um, the... The males will display um, at a potential nest site. Um, so if a female, you know, comes and lands next to him and, you know, they do their little courtship ritual and, and it's, a, it's a match, um, then they'll pretty much like immediately that site is, is where they're going to nest. Um, so then they'll start uh, getting to work on building their nest right where they were displaying. They nest in colonies that are densely packed both with other frigate birds and other colony nesting bird species. Um, they build their nests in trees and shrubs located on islands so that they are protected from mammalian predators. Males will provide twigs to the female, but she does all the actual nest building by herself. When gathering nesting material, males will often chase and steal sticks from each other. Um, it seems like the male bringing sticks to the female is a major turn-on because that's when most copulation happens. So, like, you know, them, the, the courtship, you know, that's some, like, okay, I like you, let's go on a date. And then, uh, you know, them building the nest, that's the, the foreplay. And when, when the male brings some sticks for the nest, that's, you know, that's when the female's like, all right, let's get it on. Um, so they'll do this for about two weeks, um, copulating and building the nest, and then start laying eggs. Or I guess I should say egg, because <laughs> they only lay one. Um, the exact timing of their courtship and egg laying varies a lot by colony site. It was some colonies laying eggs in October and November, and others waiting until January. Um, they seem to try to line up their egg laying with when the trade winds will be favorable for food availability and for takeoff. Um, remember, these are big birds and they need some wind support to be able to get airborne. Um, that's part of why they stay airborne for so long, because it's pretty hard for them to take off. So, you know, when they're when they know they're going to be for long periods of time, you know, staying uh, landed, uh, you know, on a nest, taking care of young, they need to make sure that they can take back off again. And like I said, they only lay one, just one egg. Um, both male and female take turns incubating it, usually in shifts that last four days each. Incubation of the eggs lasts around two months. The chicks hatch naked and totally dependent on their parents. Um, this is termed altrical. So, you know, getting food, it can be pretty variable. Um, sometimes it's feast or famine for frigate birds, you know, like... They have to rely on either finding something floating or rely on predatory marine animals to scare prey up for them. So 
There can be a scarcity of food and chicks may not be fed every day. Rates of feeding appear to differ depending on the colony, uh, with Galapagos chicks getting fed twice a day, and chicks at a colony on Isla Isabella in western Mexico getting fed only once every three days. This innate unpredictability of food uh, means that chicks grow pretty slowly. In fact, it takes up to 14 months to raise a magnificent frigate bird chick. They aren't even fully covered in those classic chick downy feathers until 60 days of age. This is a super slow growth rate, um, and I guess it, that's the strategy of these birds. They, they don't try to grow real fast because they're not getting fed often, so they just grow real slow and steady, getting the food when it comes. Um, for about the first six weeks of its life, the chick is always incubated by one of its parents um, because, you know, it doesn't have those downy feathers. It can't thermoregulate. Um, but after that, they, the parents start to leave the nest more and more and leave the chick alone for longer periods of time. The male frigate bird, though, does not have the patience to raise a chick for 14 months. Nope. He only sticks around for about one to three months after hatching, and then he begins packing his bags and takes off over the open ocean, leaving the mother to raise the chick by herself for 11 more months. Um, this is where that asterisk happens on monogamous, you know, for the species, because, yes, they are monogamous, you know, during a breeding season um, but you know then the the father packs up and leaves um, and he'll go off molt his feathers and then he'll return to the colony when breeding time rolls around again and try to attract a new mate um, meanwhile his original baby mama is still busy raising that chick all by her lonesome so this means that the males can breed every year while females only breed on alternating years this is totally unique in the bird world. Um, magnificent frigate birds are the only birds that have this very different breeding cycle between the sexes. This does result in an unequal sex ratio for breeding every year. Um, there's more males available to breed than there are females. One study I read found that only 55% of males in a given year are successful at breeding. This results in a very strong sexual selection. You know, when the males are, you know, having to compete um, really strongly for the available females, there's twice as many of them. Um, it really drives evolution to select for red throat sacks and big throat sacks. Uh, you know, if you don't have a red one, if it doesn't inflate really big, I'm sorry, buddy, but you're not getting lucky. Parents sometimes have to travel pretty far in search of food for their chicks. Uh, in one study I read uh, where they GPS tracked some uh, parent frigate birds, uh, they traveled a mean distance of 68 kilometers or 42 miles um, to, to find food away from the nest. And one parent traveled as far as 1,000 kilometers or 621 miles. Males appear to travel farther from the nest in search of food than females do. Uh, this may be because they're a little bit less invested in the chicks and are willing to take time searching for food out over the open ocean, willing to, you know, risk a little more because, uh, you know, they can breed every year. The females, though, you know, they only get a shot every other year. And even after 14 months of being raised, when the, the young finally leave the nest, they are still fed by the females um, for a long time, actually, up to about nine months, basically until breeding season rolls around again. So, I mean, for females, this is a two-year investment in their young. It's, it, it's crazy. The success of their breeding really varies by colony and year. Um, if there's a bad storm, a whole colony could be wiped out. Or maybe it's a year with abundant food and, and the colony does really well. Uh, for example, I found a study that monitored 68 chicks, of which only two died. Both of those were males, um, which are presumably less valuable in magnificent freaky bird society, you know, so maybe the parents didn't invest as much in them. Um, however, I also found uh, many other colonies where success rates were reported more around a 10 to 50% success rate. Um, the parents um, undergo a lot of stress during chick rearing. Um, they lose significant weight um, during the, the chick rearing cycle. Um, sometimes they even have to abandon chicks due to starvation. And although they're colony nesters, they don't appear to really look out for each other. If a chick is abandoned, falls out of the nest, or its parents die, it will pretty much just be ignored by the other frigate birds and left to die. Also, if a chick dies, parents appear to not be able to acknowledge the death of the chick and will continue to attend to its nest 
as if the chick is alive at least for several days, based on one study on the Mexican island of Isla Isabella that I read. This study also did something pretty interesting. They took three chicks that had been abandoned and placed them in three nests that had recently had chicks die. Of these three, only one successful adoption occurred. A chick turned Chick X. And then in a tragic twist of fate, a tropical storm hit the island and killed almost all of the chicks on the island, including that poor orphan Chick X. I guess it's kind of fitting that I'm doing this episode, you know, right after a tropical storm, tropical storm Ophelia, you know, hit these woods that I'm recording in right now. Because tropical storms, hurricanes factor a lot into the uh, the breeding and the success rate and just the lives of magnificent frigate birds, um, which, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Not much is known about the dispersal patterns of magnificent frigate birds, um, but it appears that they will at least sometimes really spread their wings and travel far from the place they were born. A chick that was originally banded in Brazil was once recovered 5,000 kilometers or 3,000 miles away in the Lesser Antilles. Um, But for the most part, they seem to return to their original breeding colony. Um, You know, uh, they'll kind of travel a bit as a juvenile and then they'll come back when it's time to breed to the place they were born. They don't fully acquire their adult plumage until about five to seven years of age. Um, And this is when they also start breeding. So you can easily see how even a few mortality events can really affect the magnificent uh, frigate bird population since they only lay one egg, um, you know, and that's once every two years and they don't become sexually mature until they're five to seven years old. Outside of the breeding season, usually they're segregated by sex. Um, When they're roosting, usually it's females roosting with other females and males roosting with other males. While roosting, you'll sometimes see them uh, adopting this pretty spectacular sunning posture where they will lay back on their tail, extend their wings, and tilt them upwards towards the sun as if their wings are giant solar panels. As far as their sounds, they're not a very talkative bird. You usually just see them silently soaring in the sky. Um, When they do talk, it's usually during the breeding season um, when they're in their colonies. Um, They'll they'll make a lot of noise um, at their colonies. They'll be all together in their colony making squawking calls and snapping their bills, really making a ruckus. And like I said, during courtship, you know, the the males are making some noise to to try to attract the females. And and this is where their gular pouch comes into play because uh, they'll make these croaking sounds with their gular pouch. This is termed drumming. A lower frequency drumming sound may be especially sexy to female frigate birds because larger gular sacs are capable of producing lower frequencies based off a paper I read out of the University of Copenhagen. Um, I can't help but think of the singer Barry White with, you know, his low, deep, sexy singing voice um, attracting the female frigate birds to come and mate with him. Hey, baby, can't get enough of your gular sack. <laughs> Um, they also make some pretty gnarly grating calls and squawks. Um, these are given while individuals are agitated, especially when they are trying to steal food from each other. Sometimes they really go at it and sound like angry pterodactyls. The chicks also make begging calls when they're getting fed by their parents. This is super cool, guys. A um, fox just walked up on me. It looks like a gray fox. Um, He's just kind of peering at me through the brush right now. So cool. I want to pull out my phone and take a picture, but I also don't want to scare him. I'm just having so much fun just looking at him, and he's looking at me like, what the hell is he doing? Sitting on a stump? With a microphone. Yeah, now he or or she is just like, I don't know, 30 feet from me, just sitting on its haunches like a, a dog begging for food, just looking at me. 
Oh my god, it's acting just like a dog. It's like scratching itself and looking. Oh, and there it goes. Wow. That was an amazing experience. See, this this goes to show you, birding is not just about birding, it's about all wildlife. And Wow, that was a super cool, cool experience. So, I, I guess that's a good prelude to go into talking about the relationship of, you know, humans and wildlife, humans and magnificent frigate birds. Um, their um, first appearance in the historical record is actually from Christopher Columbus. Um, when he passes Cape Verde Islands, he talks about uh, magnificent frigate birds. Sadly, this subpopulation of frigate birds that he described is now extinct. Um, many breeding colonies in the Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico, and Florida Keys that once existed are now extinct due to human development and also introduction of predators. The world population is estimated at around 59,000 to 71,000 breeding pairs. The majority of these, um, around 50,000, are in the Pacific. And the population of magnificent frigate birds is uh, unsurprisingly in decline. Um, like I said, many colonies that once existed are now gone. Um, there's even some really sad colonies, like on two small islands of Cape Verde, um, that just have five breeding pairs left. They currently are listed as a near-threatened species. But unfortunately, most colonies don't have any kind of legal protection whatsoever. As an example of a you know, declining colony, um, I read about one on the British Virgin Islands that decreased from 3,000 in 1995 to 925 in 2014. And this same story is just repeated for just about every colony that you read about. Not just magnificent frigate birds, but pretty much every seabird globally is declining. Um, and they're actually declining at a faster rate than any other avian group. Fishing lines are a major threat to seabirds, including magnificent frigate birds. Uh, I found an account from 2012 where a colony of magnificent frigate birds on the island of Great Tobago. Um, there were 60 birds found there dead tangled in fishing line. They're also sometimes caught as bycatch by fishermen um, who have hooked bait that's floating, you know, either on or just under the surface, and the frigate birds will scoop up the bait and actually get caught on the hooks. Uh, another type of line that can injure frigate birds is kite strings, specifically fighting kite strings that are coated with glue and glass shards. Uh, kids will fly these kites and try to cut each other's kite strings. However, they sometimes, hopefully unintentionally, hit seabirds too, um, causing serious injuries. During the COVID pandemic, when schools were closed, Rio de Janeiro and Brazil saw 1,000% increase in magnificent frigate bird injuries from kite strings as children flocked to the beaches to fight kites uh, now that school was closed down. These injuries are really gruesome. Um, wings are nearly severed off the body, and apparently only 2% of frigate birds admitted uh, to wildlife rehabilitation centers with kite string injuries ever return to the wild. And their colonies, you know, are, are very easily, um, you know, disrupted by either human development, you know, humans, you know, clearing that land to build on or, or, or you know, whatever else. Um, also, introduction of invasive predators like cats can have a really devastating effect and cause colony collapse. Um, we've seen similar situations in, in my episodes on brown pelicans, puffins, roseate spoonbills, you know, any colony nesting bird like, you know, they... They nest in these very dense, uh, you know, colonies on very specific areas, and if those areas are destroyed, then it, it really impacts their breeding. Boaters can disturb colonies. Um, you know, if a boat gets too close to a colony, it'll cause the adults to fly off of the nest, and that leaves their eggs and their chicks exposed. And, you know, this is the tropicals area with the sun beating down, so it's very, very easy for the eggs or the chicks to cook and die in the sun. Introduced goats appear to also be uh, destructive because they'll eat away at the shrubs that the frigate birds rely on for their nesting platforms. Um, yeah, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but they, uh, their colonies, they'll nest in, in tree, like small tree shrubs, um, you know, that are on, you know, floating islands um, and build their nests in those. They don't seem too impacted by pollution, at least compared to a lot of other birds that I've, I've studied uh, from some... Uh, papers that I've read, they have relatively low levels of PCBs or polychlorinated biphenyls um, found in their systems, um, at least those sampled near Brazil in a paper from 2015 that I read. 
Um, this may be because food that frigate birds ingest is usually, you know, from the open ocean, far from industrialized sites where pollution is uh, being directly dumped into the water on the coast. Um, however, you know, even out in the open ocean, you know, there's, it's not safe from the impact of humans. Um, I read a paper that came out of the uh, World Health Organization that found about 5% of magnificent frigate birds on Akaltrez's island had an antibiotic-resistant form of E. coli. Um, this is a bacteria that pops up a lot in infections in humans. I've treated plenty of patients with E. coli. Um, and particularly the strain of resistance uh, pattern that this bacteria had is called ESBL, Extended Spectrum Beta-Lactamase Inhibitor. Um, basically, the bacteria produces an enzyme that cancels out a lot of antibiotics. So this is uh, a little bit disturbing because, I mean, these birds, you know, they live out on the open ocean. They nest on isolated, uninhabited islands far from humanity. So the fact that they have a bacteria that's resistant to antibiotics, um, I mean, it just shows how, you know, humans' careless use of antibiotics in modern medicine and the livestock industry has impacted our entire planet, you know. Um, sorry about that rant on antibiotic resistance, but, um, you know, we're just like breeding super bugs, um, and maybe it'll get to the point where none of our antibiotics worked anymore, and we're back in the 1800s. As far as more natural threats to these birds, um, storms like hurricanes, those are, are the big thing that can devastate colonies. In 1988, a hurricane that hit Barbuda destroyed 25% of frigate bird eggs in a colony and 10% of chicks. In 1988, a hurricane that hit Barbuda destroyed 25% of frigate bird eggs and 10% of the chicks on that colony. And on Isla Isabella in western Mexico, 79% of eggs were lost and less than 50% of the chicks survived during bad weather that breeding season from 1993 to 1994. It's estimated that in good years, though, 50 to 75% of eggs laid will make it to the fledgling stage. El Nino events in the Pacific can lead to decreased prey abundance, um, resulting in starvation for chicks. Diseases can affect these birds pretty severely on Isle de Grande Contebelle and northern coast of South America in 2005, 99 out of 250 chicks of a magnificent frigate bird colony were found dead with skin lesions all over their body. Testing found that they had died from a form of herpes virus similar to the herpes that affects us humans. 99 out of 250 is a super high mortality event. Um, and there were other chicks that were infected but didn't die from it, um, you know, but still were severely affected by the disease. So, you know, this shows how, you know, a disease epidemic or a storm, you know, can just really, really wipe out a colony. They are pretty long-lived birds, though. Uh, magnificent frigate birds are estimated to live about 30 years, with the oldest known frigate bird being 34 years old. All right, y'all, let's wrap up talking about the evolution of these birds. You're probably hearing some uh, chainsaws in the background. <laughs> I think uh, everyone's cleaning up from the storm. Um, I'm not going to dive super deep into shorebird evolution in general in this episode. Um, frigate birds are part of the Pelicaniforme clade that contains brown pelicans, roseate spoonbills, shoebill storks, and great blue herons, all of which I've done episodes on and talk about, you know, their evolution. So check out those episodes to, you know, hear more about general evolutionary information. Um, Pelicaniforme splits into three major groups. First, the true storks, which are called Kikoniforms. Um, they're like the, the first ones to split off in this group. Um, then there's a split between two clades, the Pelicaniformis clade um, that has birds such as herons and pelicans, and then the clade our frigate bird belongs to, which is called Suliforms. Um, this contains birds such as boobies, gannets, and cormorants. The frigate bird family appears to be at least 50 million years old um, based off the fossil record. Um, I read a paper by Olson from 1977 where he describes a small frigate bird that he found in the Green River Formation in Wyoming that dated from the Lower Eocene about 50 million years ago. This frigate bird fossil, um, it's still in its early stages of its split from boobies and um, it's still in its early stages from its split from its relatives like boobies and cormorants. It still has long legs that it probably could walk on. Um, and its wings aren't as long and tapered as modern frigate birds. Its bill is shorter and less hooked. 
These primitive frigate birds are termed limnofrigata, um, and they were actually freshwater specialists, unlike our modern-day frigate birds. So it shows the basal ancestor to frigate birds was a freshwater bird and then later moved out to the ocean. Today there are five species of frigate birds, um, and these appear to have evolved relatively recently. Uh, based off a paper I read from 2004, genetic testing shows modern frigate birds diverged within the past 1.5 to 1.4 million years, with the lesser frigate bird appearing to be the most basal member of the family. The remaining four species are divided into two closely related groups, with the Great Frigate Bird and Christmas Island Frigate Bird forming a closely related group, and the Magnificent Frigate Bird and the Ascension Island Frigate Bird forming another closely related group. So you'll notice um, both of those species, the Great Frigate Bird, the Magnificent Frigate Bird, they're closely related to an island um, confined species. Um, the great frigate bird and the magnificent frigate bird, they have much wider ranges while these island ones are, you know, confined to their island. Um, so you can probably already guess how this evolved. Uh, you know, the great frigate bird, the magnificent frigate birds uh, found these islands and, and settled down and then became their own distinct species. Uh, for magnificent frigate birds and ascension island frigate birds, this speciation event occurred about 600,000 years ago. Genetic testing by Marr and Cottrell in 1979 suggested that magnificent frigate birds are a monotypic species, meaning that they have no subspecies. Uh, but that's not entirely true. Further genetic testing has shown that the Pacific and Caribbean populations are pretty isolated from each other and don't mix. However, there is a population centered around French Guiana that appears to cross over the Panama Canal and mix with both Pacific and Caribbean populations just enough to cause just enough gene flow um, that technically they there are not uh, you know three separate subspecies there's not a pacific subspecies a caribbean subspecies a french guiana subspecies they're they're all still the same species three different populations um, that do mix their genes you could easily be fooled into thinking there were different subspecies though because between colonies even there's a lot of variation in body and egg size um, these colonies sort of represent different family units. Remember I said that they returned to the same colony to breed, you know, as long as that colony wasn't wiped out by a storm. Um, so they kind of form, you know, their own families. And, you know, as we know, each family has, you know, their distinct nose or hair color or something like that. It's, it's the same with the magnificent frigate birds. They'll have, you know, certain size uh, eggs or, you know, certain, you know, body sizes. There is a subspecies, though, that exists on the Galapagos Islands. It comprises only about 2,000 individuals. Um, these magnificent frigate birds are both genetically and morphologically distinct. They exhibit some island giganticism. Um, they have bigger bodies and longer tails than do the, uh, the you know, kind of mainland population of magnificent frigate birds. Also from pictures I looked at um, and firsthand accounts, it appears that male Galapagos magnificent frigate birds have a sort of iridescent green sheen um, to their back feathers. Um, you know, we talked about iridescence at the beginning of the episode uh, in Magnificent Frigate Birds, but this one seems way more pronounced. Like it was a, it was a really like bright green shine to them. Um, but I couldn't find any other like, you know, distinctive uh, morphological um, differences um, between the two subspecies. Genetic testing suggests that the two subspecies have been separated by a few hundred thousand years. Um, this may actually be enough to support them being their own species, uh, you know, the Galapagos Island Magnificent Frigate Bird being its own species. This would actually be advantageous if uh, they are formally recognized as their own species because then they would be eligible for more legal protections than they currently have. Well, y'all, that's all I got on Magnificent Frigate Birds. They, they are a bit of an understudied bird. Um, I probably read nearly every single paper, you know, about them, at least the ones I could, uh, could get access to. Um, and that's all the facts. So, you know, write in, tell me what birds you want to learn about. Let me know if you want free stickers. Write reviews, please. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. 
The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Jungle, I might get into a 